This is the Equip Podcast from Cornerstone Church of Ames, a podcast designed to help you live a gospel-fueled and faithful life wherever Jesus has called you. Welcome to the Equip Podcast from Cornerstone Church. My name is Mark Vance, and I am joined again by Dr. Matt Lapine. He is here for part two of our two-part series on mental health in the Christian. And in particular, what we've been unpacking is what Matt calls kind of five common myths about mental illness. And so what I want to do is quickly review for us what we went over in podcast one. There are five myths, false beliefs about mental illness that you find really prevalent inside the Christian community. Myth number one, you are alone in this. Myth number two, depression and anxiety are simply a spiritual issue. Myth number three, what you believe erases your emotional difficulties. Myth number four, depression and anxiety are simply a chemical imbalance. And then myth number five, you should be able to change your emotions right now. And so we went over the first three of those in part one. If you didn't get a chance to listen to that, it was incredible. Matt gave some incredible insight. I would urge you, go back and listen to part one of this podcast. But today, I'm here with Matt, and Matt, we're going to tackle myths four and five. Depression and anxiety are simply a chemical imbalance, and you should be able to change your emotions right now. So let's jump right into myth number four. And Matt, I got to tell you, when I read this as a myth, it sounds weird to say that this is a myth, because I cannot think of something that sounds more normal. Like most people, when they talk about mental health goes, yep, I just, I've really been struggling with kind of a chemical imbalance. So I'm going to take some medication. It feels like everybody almost accepts that that is true. So how is that a myth? Yeah. See, this is one of the really odd ones where, um, what's sort of largely assumed to be true in popular culture is at pretty strong variance with um, how medical experts actually talk about it. Um, so, I mean, I'd, I'd encourage listeners right now, go to your computer, pause this, type in, is mental illness a chemical imbalance? Question mark on Google, hit enter, and then read some articles on it. Because um, you don't have to believe me on this. You can go to Harvard uh, Med and, and read it for yourself. But um, this understanding of the cause of depression or anxiety is just false. Um, it's, it's not simply a chemical imbalance. Some people have, have talked about it um, as being like you're low on oil. So you just add, need to add a little oil back in. But um, if this were the case, we would expect the sort of long-term outcomes of, of um, you know, anti-anxiety meds or antidepressants uh, to be better than they are. Um, the the long-term outcomes are just not... Uh, uh, they're not anywhere near 100% uh, effective. And so I, I'm just going to read you one quote. I've got a, a sort of a page full of these, but in case you don't want to just take my word for it, this is Ronald Pye's clinical professor of psychiatry at Tufts University and lecturer on psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. So he, he, he says, quote, in truth, the chemical imbalance notion was always a kind of urban legend, never a theory seriously propounded by well-informed psychiatrists. I stand by my claim that no respected representatives of the profession seriously asserted a simple chemical imbalance theory of mental illness in general. In the past 30 years, I don't believe I have ever heard a knowledgeable, well-trained psychiatrist make such a preposterous claim, except perhaps to mock it. So again, this is sort of the, the inverse of, I think, myth two, where we said it was simply a spiritual issue. 
um, the the point here is that it's never just one simple and easy thing. That it's a complex formula that that goes into this. Um, so, but the problem with this myth, and the reason why I have it on this list, is if you affirm this myth, there's a sort of learned helplessness that that can arise sometimes. Um, something has just gone wrong with my body. So that's physical. My body's physical, right? So I just need another physical thing to sort of fix the physical thing that's gone wrong with it. And I'm not even saying that this could never happen, right? Like I, I had a friend with, who had a, just a strange situation where um, he, had, he fought depression most of his life um, and then had a heart episode, had a pacemaker put in, and he said the depression was gone after that. Um, I don't really know how to explain that other than to say that your parasympathetic nervous system, um, should I get into parasympathetic nervous system? Maybe yeah, quick, man. Maybe I'll quickly say, okay. Your yeah, sympath- we're taking a little yeah. detour here into the parasympathetic <laughs> and sympathetic nervous system, the subject matter that everyone right. on this podcast wants yes. to hear about. But actually, we've talked about this before, Matt, and it's really helpful if people will get yes. this. So explain what you mean by that. Yeah, just basic nuts and bolts. I mean, I would also recommend if, you, if you're still Googling, go to Crash Course parasympathetic nervous system and watch the sympathetic nervous system yeah, we'll, as well. We'll, we'll put really that helpful. in the show notes. It's really, that's yeah. really good stuff. So think of your, your sympathetic nervous system as your gas pedal. So it's like if something's there to endanger you or stress you out, it gets you ready to fight, flight, or freeze, right? That, those are your, it's your fight, flight, or freeze uh, mechanism. And so it's a distributed mechanism. It, it, it goes throughout your body. So it, it, it impacts like the muscles in your leg. It impacts your heart rate. It impacts you, all your organs. Uh, so that's like your gas pedal gets you ready to stress out. Um, the parasympathetic is your um, brake pedal, so that calms you down. It it uh, gets you ready to sort of digest and to and to repair your body. Um, so they, they're sort of in tension with each other. Um, the parasympathetic nervous system, as I was saying, though, is responsible for moderating your heart rate. Your heart rate would be a lot faster without the parasympathetic nervous system. And so that may have had something to do with my friend's depression. So the, the point I was trying to make at that point was to say, I'm not even saying that that depression couldn't be caused by something going wrong physically. I'm just saying it's not the simple cause of mental illness. It's not like a mm-hmm. catch-all like everyone thinks it is. Mm-hmm. So the point, though, is understanding what's happening with depression and anxiety um, is really important to enable you to, to sort of take some steps. So a lot of times, I mean, with OCD, for instance, the gold standard for, for uh, treating OCD is cognitive therapy. But if, if cognitive therapy is not working, if you don't have great insight about your, your obsessions, uh, they'll pair it with um, some uh, some uh, anti-anxiety meds, so th- to to help you um, sort of get over the hurdle. And so, a lot of times, um, those those medications are used in conjunction with other treatments, either uh, cognitive treatments or behavioral treatments like exposure um, therapy. So, um, we really need to understand the sort of richness of what's going on. And part of that, for me, is pointing out just how. Uh, huge your your context is or how huge your choices are, right? So if you're really um, depressed about how bad your life is, um, you might ask questions about like, well, how much time am I spending on video games? How, many, how much time am I spending uh, scrolling through Instagram and com- comparing my life with the fake lives of everyone I know? 
Um, there's a lot of these sort of just really easy, simple, tangible things that have huge impacts on our mental health that we're not even aware of. So if you think it's just a mental imbalance, you'll continue to engage in all your negative habits while just taking some meds that hopefully will make you feel better. And, and it's just a recipe for frustration and mm-hmm. for upping your dosage um, and staying on them longer. It's, it's interesting to reflect on that scenario, Matt. Like you talked about the video gamer who I'm, wa- I'm on a video game all the time in isolation and I really feel terrible. I must have a chemical imbalance, right? right. And you wonder which came first, the chicken or the egg? Did the mm-hmm. chemical imbalance drive you to the isolation of video games? So what I think yeah. people find with the chemical imbalance is both this and the this is simply a spiritual problem, what they, what they do is for me, I want easy answers to hard things yes. so often. Like I want, well, just give me a pill to fix it. That's so much easier than saying, you know, you have like cultivated a ton of bad habits in your life. And those bad habits weigh you down, and you're going to have to do some hard work of thinking through what is the sort of life you're living? How, what are those habits contributing to actually your sense of overwhelmedness, your sense of anxiety? And so I think it's a really important point to say to people, we're way more complicated than a simple, quick Band-Aid solution makes us out to be. But yeah. I do think it's important to ask this question, though. So are you saying quit your medication because it doesn't do anything? I want to make sure we clarify that. Is that what we're saying here? Yeah. No, I'm, that's certainly not what I'm saying. Um, so, I mean, just to be very, very clear, I think that medicine um, and psychotropic drugs are a kindness from God. Um, uh, and so I, I see no problem at all with medical use. And you should get expert advice on that. I'm not an expert to give advice on that. but. Um, you know, there's a there's a broad spectrum of people out there. There's uh, there's people who have. I mean, we're all on the spectrum, right? Uh, all of us um, deal with with um, sadness and depression. All of us deal with anxiety at some level. And um, there's a qualitative difference between people who are just totally dominated by it and people who can sort of fight it off. Um, you know, day in and day out. So, excuse me. Um, so yeah, I you know. At, your end, at the ends of the spectrum, you definitely uh, should get some get some uh, a consult with our, our psychiatrist or our counseling center. Um, and and I think medicine um, is just I think it's a lifesaver for a lot of people. But uh, so I'm definitely not uh, counseling people to quit their medicine, and I don't even think that people should see medication as a failure. I think it's part of God's kindness to us. And part of the reason that I say that is because um, you know our bodies participate in the curse on the ground. Romans 8 uh, says that creation is groaning, um, and we ourselves are also groaning, await, awaiting the redemption of our body. And so, um, yeah, there, there's, uh, there's real difficulties that are sort of wired into us, and uh, those difficulties are often made much worse by some of the experiences that we've gone through, and sometimes those things are, are difficult to get out of, and um, sometimes we may never get completely out of them. So, um, mm. Yeah, that's really helpful. So myth number four is about saying, myth number four is saying that depression and anxiety are simply a chemical imbalance. We're saying, well, maybe that's part of the equation. We know certainly something physical is part of the equation because we're physical and everything else beings. 
but don't oversimplify what is complex there. Now, fifth emotion or fifth myth of mental health is this. You should be able to change your emotions right now. Just stop feeling bad and start feeling good. Yeah, it reminds me of the, the Bob Newhart sketch, right? The, uh, we the... should link to that in the show notes. <laughs> Guys, it, all I'm going to say is it's just a incredible illustration of what not to do in counseling yeah. and it's great for a laugh so we will be sure <laughs> we will be sure it. to put the stop it sketch in the show notes it's well worth two minutes of your time yeah uh yeah i mean the idea here is that emotion is like a choice like emotion is is like raising your hand and, it, and if it is like that if 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 you can change your emotions just by sort of adopting a new thought in these next five minutes um, then it would seem like you're duty bound to do so because Jesus says, don't be anxious. But I, part of what I do actually in the book um, is uh, put the, the, the do not be anxious command from Matthew 6 within the context of the Sermon on the Mount. So what is the opposite of anxiety for Jesus? Well, the opposite of anxiety is what he says a couple of verses later, seek the kingdom. Um, and the kingdom is a kingdom that is an already not yet kingdom. So it's already here. The spirit here is here as a first fruits, but we are still groaning. So I, I mentioned that Romans eight chapter. I just think some biblical, um, just uh, some biblical evidence will be helpful here. Um, if you look at Romans eight eleven, it says, "If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit who lives in you." So just think about that. The Spirit of God is who, who took Christ's dead cells and made them alive at his resurrection. So, like, the Spirit of God has real power over physical things, right? So, he's the one who lives in us, and he will bring our mortal li- uh, bodies to life, right? Uh, but then, if, so we'd, we'd expect that to be sort of a triumphalist account of, of how the Spirit is going to change us, that the Spirit is going to solve everything immediately for us, Right. But look at how the chapter continues. It says, um, we know that the whole creation, this is verse 22, has been groaning together with labor, labor pains until now. And not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as first fruits. Again, he's acknowledging we have the Spirit, Spirit, but we still also groan within ourselves, eagerly awaiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. And so um, we just, we have to be aware that... Um, if you think that all of your emotions should be fixed right now, you might have a, a way of looking at our bodies, which actually is unbiblical. It, uh, what, in theological terms, we'd call this an over-realized eschatology. So we, we think that more sort of triumph and victory is going to happen over the difficulties in our body than is promised to us. Um, in fact, in Romans, it talks about there's sufferings in this present time that arise from the curse and that groaning in our body is part of the sufferings that were promised. But we have God telling us that we are his children present with us. And so I just want to caution people against an over-realized eschatology. We have hope both now and in the resurrection of our bodies. But the hope that we have now is an organic hope. It, the Spirit is, is working in the midst of us as we are awaiting the redemption of our bodies. Mm-hmm. So. In the last podcast, I, I represented this with the, the garden metaphor. And I just think it's so appropriate because it's right there in that Romans 8 text about how the creation groans and we also groans. Our bodies participate in the curse on the ground. And um, so 
you know, there's a lot of things that go into sort of the care that, um, that our bodies have. Um, God's presence is, is chief among them. Like the spirit is present in us, bringing life to our mortal bodies. But then there's also other means of grace in our lives. Like our parents have a huge impact. Our, our friends have a huge impact. The way that we think has a huge impact. The way, the choices that we make, um, all of those things, think of them as sort of the sunlight and the, and the water and the nutrients in the ground. I mean, these are things that are sort of contributing to our growth in Christ. So, uh, so yeah. if, we're, if we're looking at that gardening metaphor, Matt, I want, I want to trace that in a little further even. Talk to the, me then if, in that metaphor, if I'm kind of tilling the emotional soil, right? What are things that I can do as a good, skillful gardener, you know, to kind of apply the metaphor there a little bit for us. What can I do? Yeah. So, I mean, I think this is where, again, as a theologian, I'm thinking in typical theological categories. And, and um, one, of the, one of the sort of categories, which is really nice, is that uh, theologians will sometimes talk about three forms of grace. Creation grace, which is uh, God in his wisdom, how he's created us. So, one example of that is the relationship between our thought and our experience, right? Um, you know, Aristotle has this thing, we become just by doing just things. Uh, what does that mean? It, it means if you've got a six-year-old boy and he's afraid of spiders, you can say, hey, look, it's not dangerous. It can't bite you. Go ahead and touch it. Pick it up. And the, the words that you communicate frame how he sees the spider, and then he reaches down and he p- picks up the spider, and now all of a sudden he's had an experience with a spider that didn't bite him and wasn't actually dangerous. And so he becomes more brave through those words and that experience. So I think that's just an example of creation grace, just how our words and our experiences uh, shape us. But then there's also common grace and the ways that God, in his kindness, continues to, to serve all of creation. Common means that this is available to every human. So the rains fall, the seasons come, they go, the sun rises on us, uh, uh, the sun ministers vitamin D to you, right? All of these things are common grace that God continues to make available to everybody. And, you know, people are an an enormous uh, source of common grace to us. Um, the friendships that we have, the intimacy that we have, um, the mutual confession, the mutual care, um, these are a huge form of common grace. But then there's also special grace, like God's presence in us and um, the peace that we have and the hope that we have through the gospel. Um, uh, there's special grace in, in the, the uh, Lord's table and, and in our baptism and um, in the preaching of the word and the, the, the reading of the word and the prayer of others. Um, so there's layers of grace. We have more than just one tool in our toolbox and as Christians. Sometimes we think our whole spiritual life is bound up in reading the Bible and praying. And there's certainly more tools than that. I mean, if, if this is a hard time for you, get out, take a walk in the sun, uh, soak it up, have conversation with a friend. Um, there's all sorts of tools and these are, are God's gifts to us, his, his grace to us. You know, they're tools in the toolbox. Those are those graces you described, Matt. They're, if if the we're tilling that garden, if we're cultivating the garden, those are the tools we have to do it. And mm-hmm. I think it's been so helpful to me in our friendship and in your influence in my life. You've introduced new tools 
the the I you know it's not just read your Bible, pray every day, and you're you'll grow, grow, grow. It's not less than that that we're talking about here. It's just more than that. It's a more whole view of what a person is than what I think I had before. So let's wrap up this kind of two-part series, the five myths of mental health that we've gone over with just some practical on-the-ground takeaways. And I want to talk, Matt, particularly both to the struggler, and then I want to ask a question about how we can be a friend to the struggler as a church community and as individuals. But let's just talk, both of us, just kind of some words of application to the individual who may themselves right now be struggling. What what would be words you'd want to give to them? Yeah, I mean, I mean, one big thing is that this this moment um, is a um, it's an opportunity. Like so many of our habits have been wiped clean. Like I I just can't do so many of the things that I used to do. So I've got all this time that I can decide uh, what to do with it. Right. And um, this is really, really a time for, it's an opportunity to establish new good habits. And so, um, you know, part of the big problem with American culture right now is we don't know how to be alone. We don't know how to be slow. and We don't know how to face ourselves. And um, if you're running from that right now, if you don't want to face, um, you know, some some deep problem that you have and you just want to spend four hours on Netflix every day as a as a way of distracting yourself from that, it's just not a, a healthy move in the long run for you. Um, you know, God knows everything that's true about you and he loves you. And so um, taking some time to reflect on that um, in solitude and a walk outside and enjoying the, the creative gifts he's given you would be a really, really good move right now. Um, just learn to be alone and okay. Uh, learn to rest and Sabbath. Um, but I'd also say, um, you know, just socially, um, take off your mask to someone you can trust. Um, uh, Charles Spurgeon said said once that we are that we should appear as we are, that we should take off our masks. And um, I just think that there's a lot of people uh, who are so afraid to do that. And um, you know, if you can do that with someone that you trust, and you can. You can get their uh, their warm affirmation and their love in those moments. That can just be such a grace to you, um, and it just opens up the possibility of intimacy that you don't that you didn't have before. Because one one of the things that we don't realize is that when we try and impress people with the masks that we have on, we're actually foreclosing the possibility of relationship. Because it, it'll always only be the 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 sort of false version of yourself that other people love. And so if you show them that your real self, it opens up the possibility for an, a real relationship. So there's, those are two things. Wow. You know, I, I'm thinking too, Matt, you've got the struggler and then you've got the friend to the struggler. And I think maybe as a wrap up, maybe as a friend, one of the things that I'm learning is that we're all the struggler in a certain way, you know, yeah, yeah, uh, yep. the, the starting point for um, empathy is not going, well, you're beneath me, but we're beside mm-hmm one another beneath the cross. And so yeah. I think that we all have to take a step back right now and realize God knows our frame. He knows that we're just dust. And there's something about the, I think even the coronavirus time that shakes us up and introduces fear in us that can produce a good sort of healthy <laughs> recalibration of our own humanity. 
we don't control as much as we thought we controlled. We don't have power over as much as we thought we had power. And that starting place of kind of the pain of the humbling can actually be the place where you can learn to empathize and meet with others. And so I just want to say on behalf of everybody listening to this podcast, Matt, thanks for the labor of love you've put in, starting with empathizing with Molly and learning to love her and help her in her struggle and the fruit of what that has produced, not just in the five myths that you can unpack, but a book that you've been doing. By the way, can people buy that book, Matt? Is it out right now? Yeah, so it's not out right now. But before I get to the book, I just want, also want to say, um, you know, the, um, Molly is maybe the most courageous person that I've known. Um, you know, sometimes when you see someone who has struggled like that, what you what you fail to realize is that um, it's not actually about uh, who who you are in this particular moment compared with everyone else. It's who, it's where you've started from, and I just want to say that um, you know I am who I am because of Molly, and she is who who she is because of me. And um, it's been a it's been a beautiful relationship. But uh, I just she has pushed me in so many ways um, towards uh, compa- compassion towards others um, and towards resilience. And um, yeah, I just I just want to say that that um, that she. This, this that I'm talking about, I, I can talk about it better than she can, but this is her labor as much as mine. Mm. Um, but I That's forgot great. your question. What was your question? Oh, well, book, how do yes. we get the book? And um, it better just, be dedicated to yeah, Molly. Yeah. I think you know that, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, the book is going to be um, going to be out in the fall. It's published with Lexham. It's called The Logic of the Body. Um, I, I've sort of said that you know. I think there's nine chapters in the book. You probably need to read three of them to get a, a good track on on what I'm doing. So, um, you know, when you buy the book, I'll give you the very short version. I think it's like one chapter one, chapter eight, and chapter nine, and, and you're good. So, That's awesome. Well, Matt, thanks for the labor of love and thanks for the investment on the pat- podcast. We'll link to um, all of the materials we've mentioned here in the show notes. And for all of you, again, we hope... This just empowers you to be a great friend to someone, to live faithfully wherever God has called you. God bless. Matt, again, thanks for your time.